Hey everyone, welcome to the Frontline Community Church Podcast. My name is Carol Ann Flood, and I'm the worship director here at Frontline in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Our mission is simple, to see zero people unchanged by Jesus. So whether you've been following Jesus your whole life, or your journey has just begun, we hope that this message will help you draw near to the person of Jesus, be challenged and encouraged by His Word, and be moved to action. We hope these next few moments are a blessing to you and equip you to see who God really is and who you are in Him. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Great to have you joining with us online as well. We are in the third movement of this series we've been working our way through called Pursued, really since the new year began, talking about the big story of the Bible and the big movements of the Bible about this God who keeps pursuing us. So in January, we talked about how we were created and how God created us and created us to engage with the world we live in and with each other in relationship with each other. And then in the month of February, we talked about where it all went wrong. And we talked about sin and how we are fallen, how our world is broken because of sin. And so uh, we are in the third movement of that now. And today is the first Sunday of the season of Lent. And if you don't know, if you didn't grow up in the, in the church environment that taught you this, Lent is, uh, by the church, is considered for centuries the 40 days, not including Sundays, leading up to Easter Sunday morning. And so it's a, it's a time where we examine our hearts. It's a time where we go on a journey toward the cross. We turn our focus and our attention toward the cross. And so in this series, we're talking about the cross. We're talking about how Jesus redeemed us on the cross. Um, many of you know, if you have young children or have raised young children, you know the woes of the potty training years and how difficult and challenging that is. Um, for uh, my wife and I, uh, our oldest son, Alan, he's 20 right now, but when he was about three years old, you know how it's like a one step forward, two steps back process. At three years old, we thought we were kind of on the other side of the potty training experience. And um, one day, Alan and I are in the car, it's just the two of us, and I'm driving and I can see his face in the rear view mirror, he's right there in the seat behind me, and as we're driving down the road, a certain aroma fills the car. And I'm relatively sure it's not from me. And so uh, I don't say anything, right? I look, I'm looking at his face in the rear view mirror, I can see he's squirming, it's like, okay, he knows. So I, I, I decide, I'm not gonna say anything, I'm gonna wait for him, right, to confess. I'm gonna wait for him to tell me what's going on, because he knows at this point. And so as we're driving down the road, finally he goes, Dad, and I look in the rearview mirror and I say, yeah, buddy. And he says, Dad, I think somebody pooped in my underpants. <laughs> and I said, really? I wasn't aware that anyone else had access to your underpants in the last few minutes. And he just, yeah, dad, I don't know what happened. Somebody pooped in my underpants. He just kept this going. It's like he was trying to find some way that it didn't have to be his fault, that he didn't have to own it, that he was just an innocent victim of someone else's shameful behavior. <laughs> That's what he was hoping for. At some point in all of our lives, we face the temptation to identify ourselves as a victim to take on a victim mentality. In fact, I would tell you, I think it's one of the most potent uh, and deadly temptations that we face in our lives it is the temptation to identify as a victim. Uh, and it happens all the, all the time. I mean, sometimes it happens because we've gone through some sort of past trauma that's very real. 
where it was someone or something that was out of our control that we didn't choose. And it opens us up this window of temptation for us to sort of identify I'm a victim, that's what I am. Uh, other times it's because of betrayal. You know, somebody intimate in our life, somebody close to us that we thought we could trust betrays us. Uh, other times this temptation comes into our lives just simply because of a life crisis. Sometimes it's like, you know, something happens that causes us to have to sacrifice our goals, our dreams for the future. So we have to take care of a parent or we have to take care of a, of a loved one or a child or, or something that we weren't counting on or planting, planning on. And whenever that happens, this temptation rears its head in our lives to identify and to take on a victim mentality. So just to get really clear about what, what exactly am I talking about when I say a victim mentality, if I were to define it, the way it sounds in our heads when, when we're taking on a victim mentality, when we're saying yes to this temptation is this lie, I have no more choices. I have no more choices. That's the messaging of the victim mentality. That tomorrow is gonna be just like today. That this is just the way it is. This is just the way I am. This is just the way they are. I have no control. I have no more choices. And the problem with the victim mentality when we take it on is that the victim mentality always leads to despair. It's the only place it can lead. So the only place the path can lead to is despair, hopelessness, defeat. In fact, in our world, I don't know if you've noticed, even in our world, people are kind of picking up on this idea that, yeah, this is actually like a really bad idea to take on this mindset and to, and to identify yourself as a victim. And so we, more and more increasingly, we don't even call victims victims anymore in our society. What do we call them? Survivors. Yeah, I heard somebody say it. We, we, we talk about survive. This, is a per, this person is a survivor of this or a survivor of that because there's something intrinsic we realize like it's not, it doesn't do good things when we identify as a victim. It leads us down this certain mental path that always leads to despair, always leads to depression, hopelessness, defeat. In my own life, I think about the most recent time I've faced that temptation. It was uh, this past year in 2021. Um, I, when I went through chemotherapy from January to May, I went through uh, chemotherapy. And during that period of time, all those kind of thoughts that I have no choices, this is just the way it is, I have no, no control, uh, those thoughts were all online for me every single day. And every day it literally felt like despair was kind of like right here. I, I, I could just easily sort of tip into this mentality, this neural pathway of just kind of going down into a place of despair and defeat and just sort of resigning myself to the situation I was in. Every day I fought that challenge. And so uh, what's so interesting, and the reason I wanted to sit here and begin this way is because as we turn our minds to the cross, when you look at the story of the cross in the gospels and the way it's told, the story of the cross actually, for followers of Jesus, does not allow us to identify ourselves as victims. The cross doesn't allow us space to, to kind of identify and tolerate and, and, you know, identify as victims. And the reason for that is because as the gospel stories tell the story of, cro of the cross, Jesus is not portrayed as a victim. He's not portrayed as this person who is victimized by the cross. In fact, the gospel writers go to great lengths to paint Jesus in, in a totally different life. I mean, if you think about Jesus' story, Jesus, the victim, I mean, his story is a story about victimization. In so many ways, you know, Jesus' crimes that he was crucified for were not actually crimes, they were claims. 
Jesus didn't commit crimes, he, create, he committed claims. He went around saying, I am the son of God, I am the Jewish Messiah, I am the fulfillment of all the Old Testament scriptures. And because that was such a threat to the religious leaders, Jesus essentially becomes a victim in his crucifixion of the Jewish leaders and their jealousy. He becomes a victim of the Roman empire and its brutal oppression because the cross was a Roman execution device. He becomes a, a, a victim of Judas, one of his closest disciples, betrayal of him for 30 pieces of silver. And if you really understand the theological implications, in a sense, Jesus also becomes a victim of us, of you and me. It was our sin that put him on the cross. And yet, that's what's so strange. When you read the gospel stories of the cross, when you read their account of the cross, it's like they go into great lengths to present Jesus. If, if there's one major idea, I want you to get it, that Jesus' death was a victory. It's not a victimization. The gospel writers with every step are trying to get you to see, no, 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 Jesus' death is not the ultimate victimization story. It's a victory. It's a victory story. Let, let me show you what I mean. Let's go to uh, Matthew, Matthew's account of the crucifixion and his gospel. Jesus has just been condemned to death. He's just been condemned to crucifixion. And this is what it says, verse 27. Some of the governor's soldiers took Jesus into their headquarters and called out the entire regiment. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. They wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head. And they placed a reed stick in his right hand as a scepter. Then they knelt before him in mockery and taunted, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and grabbed the stick and struck him on the head with it. I mean, you read that and it, just, it almost turns your stomach, doesn't it? It's this story of victimization. It's a story of brutality. It's, it's this account of how Jesus was abused and mistreated by the Roman soldiers. And yet, here's what I want you to see. Matthew is including these specific details. He, he wants us to know these specific details of Jesus' experience with the cross for a reason. What he's doing is he's actually carefully selecting these, these carefully selected clues to give us a picture of what is really happening on the cross. Here's what Matthew is trying to get us to see. In, in Jesus' day, there was something called a Roman triumph. In the, the Roman Empire, this was a very, very well-known ceremony. Everybody in Jesus' world would have known about the Roman triumph. And there, there, here's a picture of it. A Roman triumph was uh, a ceremony by which whenever the reigning emperor would return to the city of Rome, there would be this ceremonial march, this parade that would go through the city streets of Rome where the emperor would basically present the people with the conquests, with the spoils of his latest conquest, whatever it was. And so here are some of the details. What would happen is outside the city gates, the Praetorian guard would gather around the emperor. The Praetorian guard are the Roman soldiers. And what they would do is they would take the purple robe off of the statue of Jupiter and they would drape it around the emperor's shoulders. And then they would take a royal scepter and they would put it in his hand. And then they would take a laurel wreath, usually made of gold, and they would place it on his head. And then as he went through the city streets, the Roman soldiers in front of all the people would shout, Hail Caesar! Do you see it? Do you see what Matthew's doing? Do you see why he tells us those specific details about the Roman soldiers and their treatment of Jesus? He's trying to show us something. Jesus doesn't get a purple robe. He gets a scarlet one. 
He doesn't get a scepter. He gets a reed stick that they hit him with. He doesn't get a laurel wreath made of gold. He gets a crown of thorns shoved into his skull. They don't say, hail Caesar. They say, hail king of the Jews. And yet what Matthew wants you to see is with every step, the Roman soldiers, even in their mockery, even in their brutality, even in their cruelty, they are proclaiming Jesus as the true king. This is a picture of the true king coming into his power. That's what Matthew's showing us. This is not a victimization. This is a victory. The early Christians, they looked at the cross and they saw it as the king being coronated. This was the king coming into his power in victory. Matthew just keeps going. I'll show you another one. Go to, go to the next one. This is verse 37, or I'm sorry, verse 35. It says, after they had nailed him to the cross, the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. Then they sat around and kept guard as he hung there. A sign was fastened above Jesus' head, announcing the charge against him. It read, this is Jesus, the what? The king of the Jews. Now, what you need to understand is in the Roman world, crucifixion was reserved for the absolute worst criminals. It was the most humiliating way to execute someone. In fact, Roman, uh, Roman citizens were never crucified. They were always beheaded if they did something to, you know, make the emperor mad. But they were never crucified. For Jewish people, in a similar way, in Deuteronomy 21, it actually says, cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree. That's what it says. So for Jewish people and for Roman people, this was the absolute lowest way to die, the most humiliating way to die. And yet what Matthew is doing, why, why would Matthew include this detail that he's being crucified and, and the way he's being crucified and the charge above him? It's because he wants us to see, even in this moment that should have been humiliation, even in this moment that should have been Jesus' complete you know, objectification in front of the entire world, this is a picture of the king coming into his power. He's the king. He's being anointed and proclaimed to the world on the cross as the true king, the real king, the only king. This is not a story of victimization, according to the gospel writers. This is a story of victory. This is a coronation. This is the king coming into his power for all the world to see. I could keep going and going and going. I'll give you one more, okay? Because all the gospel accounts include this kind of element to it. But in Matthew, use gospel. Let's just kind of keep going. Go ahead, if you could, to that next one. In, in verse 45, he, Matthew includes this detail. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. At about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Now, people have so much trouble with this verse. In fact, a lot of people don't even like to talk about this verse because it's, it's sort of this picture of, we look at it and we go, wow, this is Jesus at his lowest. It's Jesus at his most weak and humiliated. And we, we think, man, why did, why did Matthew need to tell us that? And the other gospel writers included as well. Why, why did we need to know that Jesus at his lowest, at his most vulnerable, God abandoned him? So he's not just a victim of the Roman soldiers or of the Jewish leaders. He's not just a victim of Judas. He's also a victim of God himself. That at Jesus' lowest moment, God himself abandons Jesus and turns away. That's what Matthew wants us to know. That's not at all what Matthew is trying to say here. That's not at all why he included this detail. Uh, the key 
understanding that will change the way you view this verse. I think this is one of the most misunderstood verses in all of scripture. The key thing that will change the way that you view this verse, you have to understand Jesus is quoting Psalm 22 here. Psalm 22 begins, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Now, why does that matter? Here's the key understanding that'll change the way you view this. In Jesus' day, the Psalms were not numbered. There it is. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Yeah, that's it. Seriously. In Jesus' day, the Psalms were not numbered. Why does that matter? We numbered the Psalms later in our Bible when they came along. In Jesus' day, Psalm 22 was not called Psalm 22. In Jesus' day, the way that you referenced a Psalm was by the first line. Jewish people would have had it, the Psalms mostly memorized. And so if you wanted to refer to Psalm 22, you wouldn't call it Psalm 22. The way you would refer to it is, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Jesus is hanging on the cross in this moment. He speaks the first line of Psalm 22, hoping that his hearers, his Jewish listeners, are going to hear and, and think to themselves the entirety of Psalm 22. And what he's saying is right now, Psalm 22 is being fulfilled right before your very eyes. Psalm 22 begins, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Here's some other uh, lines from it. It says, I am scorned by everyone. All who see me mock me. All my, all my bones are out of joint. They divide my clothing among them and cast lots for my garment. Psalm 22 was, was a prophetic psalm about the cross. It was written by King David, but King David is not just talking about himself when he writes the words of Psalm 22. Prophetically, he's speaking about the moment that Jesus is fulfilling on the cross. And Jesus hanging there, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? He's saying Psalm 22 is being fulfilled on the cross. Why does that matter? It matters because Psalm 22 is not a psalm of abandonment. It begins that way. If it was about Jesus on the cross, it had to begin that way. Because on the cross, in a very real sense, Jesus did experience the abandonment from the father that we deserved. He took the abandonment from the father turning away that we deserve because of our sin. He took it in our place on the cross. And so in a, in a sense, Jesus did experience that abandonment from the father, but Psalm 22 doesn't stay there. In fact, the key pivoting moment in the Psalm is verse 24. Verse 24 says this, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Jesus is declaring right now in my death, what you're witnessing is Psalm 22 being fulfilled. It's not a defeat. It's not a victimization. It's a victory. I am accomplishing on your behalf the victory. I could go on and on and on and show you this again and again in so many different passages. I think that's probably enough. So, so let's shift gears here a little bit and just talk about why did I take the time to tell you that? Why does that matter to you today? Why does it matter as we consider the cross this morning? If you think about the cross, the cross became this symbol of Christianity all throughout the world, all throughout the Roman Empire, all throughout the centuries in every geographical place in the world that Christianity took root and began to grow, the cross became the symbol for Christianity. It's still, it still is today. Everywhere you go, anywhere in the world, people recognize the cross as a symbol for Christianity. Think about that for a minute. The cross is a Roman torture and execution device. It, it's, it's the place where apparently our God died 
Jesus isn't even like a survivor. You can't even call him a survivor. I mean, resurrection is different than survival. This is the place where God died. Why did the cross become the symbol of Christianity? It's, it's because early Christians understood what Matthew was trying to get us to understand. It became the symbol of Christianity because the cross is not an acknowledgement that death exists and even God had to die. The cross is actually a celebration that even death itself has been swallowed up in victory. And therefore, there's nothing left to victimize us. Even the only real enemy that ever could victimize us, death itself, has been dealt with. The sting has been taken out of it. It's been swallowed up in victory. And therefore, Jesus' victory, when we embrace him as our Savior, becomes our victory. So how do we begin to take that truth about the cross that truth that Christians believe from the very beginning of time and that we're still invited to believe in Jesus today. And how do we begin to take it into our lives? How do we begin to apply it to ourselves? You gotta understand, you have choices. We take the cross and we confront the lie in our lives that I have no more choices. I am simply a helpless victim. Tomorrow is gonna be just like today. Whatever's happened to me, I have no choice in it. I have no control over it. This is just the way it is. This is just the way I am. This is just the way our world is. It's just the way they are. And we confront it with a lie. We confront that lie with the truth of the cross. You do have choices. Can I show you a couple of them? Let me give you a couple of them. First of all, a choice that you have. You can't control your experiences, but you can control your explanations or you can choose your explanations. In fact, that's what Matthew's doing in the way that he tells the cross. He doesn't just talk about the experiences of the cross. He does. He talks about the experience of the cross he, and he doesn't spare any detail. He, he includes all the gory, bloody, disgusting heart-wrenching elements of the experience of the cross, but he tells it in such a way that he's giving us an explanation. This is the king coming into his power. You can't control your experiences. You can't, but you absolutely can choose your explanations. That language actually comes from a book called Learned Optimism. Um, I read it years ago by a guy named Dr. Martin Seligman. He coined that phrase, learned optimism, and, and here's what he said. He said, basically, what's more important in your life than your actual experiences is your explanations, the way you explain why. Anytime anything bad happens in our lives, we immediately begin to explain to ourselves why that bad thing is happening. Let me give you an example. So you're on a date, and your date is a half an hour late. You're sitting there at the restaurant, they're a half an hour late, and so you get out your phone to call them, but when you call them, it goes straight to voicemail. They don't pick up at all. What do you do in that moment? What you do sitting there in that restaurant is you begin to explain it to yourself, don't you? And however, you begin, you begin to make up a narrative in your head, a story in your head of how, what must be happening. And depending on however you make up an explanation in your head, that will control your emotional response. It will control the way you react. So for instance, you're sitting there, it's half an hour that they won't answer the phone. If the story you make up in your head, if you explain it to yourself by saying, they stood me up. They don't even care about me. They just stood me up. Now, what's your emotional reaction? It's not a trick question. <laughs> You're mad, right? You're angry. 
And that's going to be the way you respond. But think for a minute, what if the way that you explain it to yourself in that moment instead is you say, oh no, they're not answering their phone. They must have gotten in a horrible car accident. Maybe they're just like lying in a ditch somewhere. Well, now what's your emotion that you're feeling? You're scared, you're, you're worried, you're sad, you're anxious. Yeah, that's the way. But what if the way that you explain it to yourself is, well, they must be with another person. He must be with another woman. That must be what's going on. Well, now, how, what's your emotional reaction? Jealousy, right. If the way you explain it to yourself is, oh, he, he's not here and I can't get a hold of him. He must be working late, making extra money to provide for uh, our family and for me and, and everything. Now, what's your emotional reaction? Gratitude, right? Thankfulness. And naivete, I would say. You're a little naive. If, if that's really what you believe in that moment, you're a little naive. You see it? You, you can't control your experiences. But you can choose your explanation. You can choose the way that you explain it to yourself. I told you I, I faced a victim mentality temptation every single day last year going through chemotherapy. And the, the question that I got asked the most every, every day going through chemo from you guys, from friends, from loved ones, the question I kept getting asked was about the side effects. People just kept asking me, how are the side effects? How bad are the side effects? After every, every treatment I would get, it would be like, how, how bad are the side effects today? Uh, what, what side effects are you experiencing? And so what happened is I was answering that question all the time. And you know, you understand like side effects are negative you know, fatigue, nausea, vomiting. I had this like horrible pain in my side. Uh, those are negative things. And so what, what happened is I kept answering that question. I kept talking about all those things. And what happens is the more you talk about it, the more you focus on it and the more it just sort of leads you into this like victim mentality. I have no more choices, poor me. Look at this. And so I remember at one point during that journey, just praying and seeking God and trying to, trying to just, you know, experience breakthrough in the midst of that season. I remember uh, God said something to me in the midst of that. He, he spoke to me, he said, you know, Brian, side effects are not all negative. Yes, fatigue, nausea, vomiting, pain, all that, those are side effects, but who would have guessed? Joy, uh, gratitude, a greater awareness of how much I am loved by so many people, those are side effects too. And so I made a conscious shift somewhere in those five months where I literally began to answer the question differently. You may have noticed it as you asked me that question. How are the side effects? How bad are the side effects? What side effects are you experiencing? Here's how I began to answer it. Let me tell you about a side effect I just experienced. A couple days ago, somebody called me up that I haven't talked to in over two decades. I grew up with them and they heard about it on Facebook or whatever, you know, that I was going through this treatment. And so they tracked me down, they found my number, they called me up and they just told me how much my life had meant to them and how much they'd been impacted by my life. It's an amazing side effect of this. I would never get this opportunity if I wasn't going through this right now. You see it? You can't control your experiences. You absolutely can control your explanations. But we can't just end there because even controlling your explanations will only get you so far. 
Jesus never embraces this victim mentality. He never does it. And therefore we never really can if we embrace Jesus. But our, even controlling our explanations, it doesn't ultimately get us all the way down the road because the truth is for every single one of us in this room, we all eventually will face death someday. The last two years of COVID, so many in our church have, have experienced death of loved ones, death of people close to them. We look at the world, the news and what's happening in Ukraine and the death count rising and it grieves us. And therefore you only get real victory in this life by claiming his victory on your behalf. The only way we really get real victory in this life is by claiming his victory on our behalf. Your hope has to be rooted in something other than just your experiences. Your hope has to be rooted in something other than even your explanations. Your hope has to be rooted in the person of Christ and his victory. And so that's what I wanna challenge you to do this morning. He claimed the cross so that you could claim his victory. And so because of that, you are not a helpless victim. The lie that you have no more choices is not true. You are more than a conqueror through the love of Jesus. Neither height nor death, nor neither death nor life, neither the present nor the future, nor angels or demons, nor anything else in all of creation can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That's who you are. So would you bow your heads with me? If you're, if you're watching online as well, would you just enter into this moment in a posture of prayer with us? What I wanna invite you to do right now is I wanna invite you to claim the victory of the cross in your place of life, wherever that place of life is for you right now, where you're tempted to be a victim, wherever it is that you're tempted to believe the lie, that I have no more choices. This is just the way it is. There's nothing I can do. Tomorrow's gonna be just like today. Whatever that place is in your life where you're tempted to believe that, where you're tempted to give into that, where you're tempted to just lay down, I want you to claim the victory of the cross right now. So Jesus, we just worship you this morning. We worship you that you've already dealt head on with the only enemy that could ever really threaten us, the only victimization we ever really are gonna go through and you've swallowed it up in victory by the cross. We thank you that in you, we are more than conquerors and nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We just thank you, Jesus, that we've been crucified with Christ. Therefore, we no longer live, but you are living your life in us and through us. And so this morning, remind us of that. Uh, help us, God, as we claim your victory to know that we have uh, the truth in our lives, that we have your love in our lives and that we are overcoming everything that's happened in our world, everything that's happened in our lives, all the brokenness and the fallenness of this world, that you are redeeming it at the cross. It was a victory. And so we worship you in that. We claim the identity that is ours as sons and daughters of the Most High God, and we ask you to help us to live into that. In Jesus' name, everyone said. We hope this message encouraged you in seeing who God is and who you are in Him. 
If you want to take a next step, visit frontlinegr.com forward slash connect. We look forward to connecting with you there and we'll see you back here next week.